Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You're juggling motherhood, you're directing, you're pitching. I know you're doing a lot. I think the only thing you're not doing is, like, catering. Catering? Yeah. (laughs) I kind of am. I cook every night. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me here on Reppin. I'm Evelyn, your host, and I am really excited about today's guest. She started working at five years old and grew up on movie and television screens, appearing in numerous projects like Breakin' 2 to Bugsy with Warren Beatty. She's won two Daytime Emmys for Outstanding Juvenile Female in a Drama Series. She received her first Emmy in 1989 when she was 11 and the other in 1996. Best known for her role as Robin Scorpio on General Hospital, which she originated at the age of seven and played into adulthood. From there, she's also led the cast of the General Hospital spin-offs, Poor Charles and Night Shift. Her other credits have included The Shield, Joan of Arcadia, and Once and Again. She's continued her incredible career because now she's a sought-after director for shows like The Connors, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Fuller House, and Jason Kadam's Almost Family. Recently, she wrapped her work as a director and supervising producer for High School Musical the Musical, the series. Yeah, she's incredibly accomplished, and today, you'll also find out that she's a wonderfully grounded, kick-ass woman. We've got Kimberly McCullough. Kimberly, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I'm so grateful that you made the time to come and sit down with me. How are you doing these days? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an incredible forum to sort of talk about the things that I care about. And and I think you and I share some of these things, passions, values. But yeah, I'm I'm actually doing great. I'm home. I'm on a break. Uh, so I'm just doing kind of like meetings and pitches and things like that. You started working on General Hospital at seven years old, originating the role of Robin Scorpio, daughter of Robert Scorpio and Anna Devane, played beautifully, by the way, by Tristan Rogers and, of course, Finola Hughes. When you start working at seven and working in a business like entertainment, which is an extremely fickle business, you can say, there's just so much that comes at you in entertainment, I think even for an adult to take on. What kind of experiences did you have or remember having at seven being on a major show? You know, I think I had said to you, I think I was getting gum out of my hair at seven. (laughs) You are in like a major show. What were some of your experiences starting in an industry like entertainment at seven? Well, first of all, I actually started when I was five. 
So I had some sort of experiences leading up to that. I was basically a professional dancer. I was in a movie called Electric Boogaloo Break in Two when I was five. And then I auditioned for Fame when I was six. And Debbie Allen hired me for that and hired me for a couple of other jobs after that. Did tons of uh, commercials where I was a dancer, some where I spoke a little bit. So I had, I would say, some experience with rejection. But honestly, my experience was more that I was just having fun with other creative people. Um, my mother, when I was young, when I was like four and five, she had her own television show called The Dynamite Kids. It was a, it was a, um, a local TV show put on by mostly the kids who were in beauty pageants. So I was already very comfortable creating and being around other people my age who were performers. What I wasn't comfortable with was being around adults. That part was a new experience. And then, of course, having to learn so much dialogue. Yeah. But thankfully, <laughs> I, I had and have still a visual memory. So I could read something once and know it. And it, they used to always joke on the show when I was young and say, well, if you don't know your lines, just ask Kimberly. And a lot of the men on the show, for some reason, had had a teleprompter. The women, for whatever reason, didn't use it because we're smarter, obviously. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Thank you for taking the lead on that. Thank you. <laughs> like pretty damn sure Fanola never used the teleprompter. <laughs> but anyway, it was it was strange how comfortable it felt. And the the only things that were kind of strange to me were like, I had these things called flippers, which were fake teeth. And I didn't quite understand like they, they were, oh God, what was that doctor's name? There was a, there was a dentist that was like, did all the kids in the business did all their fake teeth. Wait, you had fake teeth at seven. Yeah. There's this thing called flippers and all of the agents that dealt with kids would tell the parents, you have to get these things made. They're called flippers. And they would do these like impressions of your mouth for any teeth that were missing and put these fake teeth in it. It was like a retainer with like fake teeth. Or sometimes if you had like one like down below or something, then you would just do like one little tooth. I thought it was strange that on TV, kids didn't actually get to be kids. Like we had to be perfect. So that was weird. Right. And that I, I wore makeup when I was seven. I wore eyeliner and mascara every day and like a little bit of lipstick. Thought that was weird. But all the other stuff, just sort of like being on set and working for whatever reason, it came really naturally to me. And I, I really liked it. It's interesting that you're talking about having fake teeth at seven, because that leads me to my next question. When you're seven and you're still so young, they are formative years. How do you deal with, you know, having to be quote unquote perfect? What kind of messaging did you get at seven and how did it hit you at that age? Um, again, I kind of want to go back a little bit because, so I did beauty pageants when I was really young right? and I was training for the Olympics and gymnastics at the age of four. Oh my God. So I already had this like background of very high stress competitive situations, which I really thrived in. But I bring up the beauty pageants because, you know, I was living in Fresno at the time where that was like the thing to do was to put your kid in beauty pageants. And I would always be the runner up to this little girl named Erica, who would always win the overall beauty title. And I would come close because my talent scores would be so high. 
that I would like almost win the big trophy, but I never did. And so I asked my mom, I was like, I don't understand. Like I'm literally getting like 100s on my talent. So why am I not winning the overall trophy? And she was like, well, because the beauty portion, like the runway part, it counts for more of the score. It's 80%. Your beauty is 80% of the score. Your talent is, you know, I, I can't remember, but it's, it's less, right. it's less. It matters less right. is what, is what they're trying to teach these <laughs> four-year-olds. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that in itself is a whole nother conversation. Totally. Totally. Well, I guess what I'm saying is like, it was already so clear to me the way that our society values beauty over talent. And I was like, I'd much rather be the most talented person in the room than the most beautiful person in the room. So although those sort of constructs were put upon me, I kind of like played the game, but I always knew that's not really what matters to me. At four years old, you had this. Yeah. I mean, I remember thinking that on the set going, yeah, I'm definitely not the prettiest girl at audition, but I am the most talented and really like feeling that kind of confidence. Like it's insane. I don't know where it came from. Seriously. I was just going to ask you, where did that come from? No idea. No idea. And it's to this day, like, you know, I'll walk into a room like I did uh, my first table read of the Connors and I looked around the table and it was like Sarah Gilbert, John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf. Juliette Lewis, Matthew Broderick. And I was like, okay, great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I respect them and their geniuses and their legends. However. But you own your seat. Yeah. You know, I I used to go on meetings for directing jobs and they used to say, oh, can you handle this person? Like this person's like kind of insane. And this actor is like really hard to work with. They don't suffer fools. I got that said to me a lot. So I would always say like, Look, like I've been playing with the big dog since I was seven. Like literally, I've been playing with the big dog since I was six. I mean, Debbie Allen is right. notoriously a strict powerhouse person, choreographer, you know? So yeah, I was just kind of like, yeah, this is where I belong. Weird. I know. It's amazing. Can you bottle it and I'll give you my address <laughs> and you can send it to me? <laughs> that is really impressive. Do you feel like that sense of confidence and belonging has deepened through the years and through life and through your professional career? You know, sometimes as time goes on and the longer you go into this business or in different circumstances, after a while, when you keep hearing the same things over and over again, you know, it can get to you. And it's certainly not exclusive to the entertainment industry. It really happens in, you know, various scenarios in life in general, but you can find yourself in situations that your confidence and your security can be shaken and it can wane. Totally. That is, that has, how can I say this? I never let it happen. Like I could, I could see it coming from a mile away. Okay. You know, so I I knew what it was like they, when they told me when I was uh, 15, I think I was, you're not sexy enough. So we got to figure that out. Like you got to learn how to talk better set me to speech therapy they got me push-up bras and I was like you guys there's nothing to push up but like good luck so yeah there's definitely moments where where I was like why am I not good enough but I have to just say like I just knew deep down inside that I was as far as my work is concerned 
I struggle more with insecurities in like relationships. But whenever it comes to my professionalism, I've I've been really confident. It really is incredible your confidence and your sense of self at such a young age. But let's go to the business. I mean, I will say that obviously my career in entertainment didn't start anywhere near as early as yours. I started at 19. That's still young. I have definitely experienced moments where I found myself in lots of different situations that range from wonderful to weird to really, really difficult. And I walked away learning something from all of them. So for you, what kind of uh, difficult or challenging situations did you find yourself in? What was hard about it? How did you navigate? And how did it ultimately turn the corner and you turned it into a point of strength? Well, there were definitely moments where I voiced my opinion, but I was shut down because I wasn't in control. So I think that a lot of me wanting to be a director was wanting to take more control and having the last word. So for example, one of the times on General Hospital, they had hired this actor. This is before Stone. Mm -hmm. Your love interest on the show. They hired this actor to to go on a date with Robin or something. And then we were supposed to kiss when he brought me home. And anyway, this actor was significantly older than me. And he had, had made some inappropriate jokes on this set in front of me. And I went up to um, the producer's office and said, I don't want to kiss this guy. And ultimately the producer talked me into it and was like, it's kind of, it's written. It's not a sex scene. It's really innocent. You know, however this person put it, I complied, but ultimately I believe that they should have listened. I was the minor in the situation. He was an adult and that's not okay. Right. So recently I was in a situation where there was a, as a director, there was a potential kiss that was supposed to happen. And thankfully my producer was totally on board with the sort of sensitive nature of it. Ultimately we didn't do it. So I think that's a perfect example of I've literally been in that situation. It didn't go my way. And to be able to give another young person that feeling of safety, like they're being heard, but also it's just like, sometimes it's not appropriate. You have been in the business for so long and in different parts, you know, in all the different parts, really, from acting at five to your teens to adulthood and now directing. But through all of the life stages, regardless of what the project was, what were some of the things that you may have witnessed some of your co-stars going through or experiencing that you found yourself in later in life? And how did you apply it? Does it feel good to know that you're drawing from your own personal experiences and doing things to make things better? Because you know what it's like, right? I do know what it's like. Um, I have to say, though, because... General Hospital was run by women. I mean, it really was for most of the time, especially Gloria Monti. I was really sort of confused when I got out into the world and I was working on other television shows about how women were not being heard because the way I grew up, 
was everyone had an equal voice. So that was really confusing to me. It was also very confusing to me that being a female director was like a thing. (laughs) I didn't, I grew up with like Marlena Laird and all these, you know, directors and Gloria and Shelly Curtis. And yeah, so that was also like, wait, what? Why is this not awesome? Like I, yeah, I expected more pushback from me wanting to be an actor turned director than the fact that I was a woman. Oh, interesting. So that was weird to me. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I want to sort of bring up that isn't really the business's fault, as opposed to it's just sort of society's ignorance, was that I'm half Mexican Mm -hmm. and I am a white passing Latina who grew up, everyone always assuming that I was white because I was Tristan and Fanola's daughter. Right. That was always strange to me because I never, not, I mean, I've guest starred on like dozens of shows. I've never played a Latina. Right. I I feel like soaps actually did a, a pretty good job of, of that or as good of job as anyone was doing back in those days of representing cultures, but it was sort of segregated. It was like, this is the black storyline. Yes. This is the Latinx storyline. They didn't call Latinx back then. The Asian storyline. This is the Asian storyline. It literally called it the Asian (laughs) storyline. I know. I know. Could be any Asian. Apparently. I remember watching it. (laughs) Just some Asians. It was a good storyline, but it was just they called it a the Asian broad quarter. Yeah, the Asian storylines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I guess about that to say that 
you know, we were all sort of fitting a, you know, square peg into a round hole type of right situation. I mean, it was of the times. That was of the times. It was more of like the way directors, male directors would talk to women. Right. Not necessarily the parts. Like the parts were actually, their roles were, I think, heroic and flawed and yep. three-dimensional. But it was like the way. It was the way they worked. Yeah. The way they work and sort of the culture around that. So like, for example, I was, when I was having a baby on the show, the director came out and was like, okay, when you're going through labor, I want you to get on all fours when you're moaning and stuff. I want you to get on the table and I want you to get on all fours. And I was like, not doing that. And he was like, well, that's how my wife did it. And I was like, well, good for your wife, but this is television. And I'm not doing that. So you did say that. Yeah. Awesome. But I was an adult. So yeah, but still not everybody speaks up. I think it can be very scary. But the thing is, like I said, I don't know why but I've had this sort of moxie confidence. And, you know, on set, they would say always be like, she's a pain in the ass because I spoke my truth. I think that's fucking (laughs) awesome. I don't know. (laughs) So now that you've had uh, some of those colorful experiences. (laughs) Yeah. How did you sort of note that? And now that you are a female director, which is interesting because, yeah, female directors are a thing. Well, it's a good thing now. It's a great thing. It wasn't a good thing before. But it shouldn't be a thing. But it is a thing, right? No, it shouldn't be a thing. But it's like with any kind of representation, the first thing that happens is it's not fully realized, you know, it's like you have to kind of label something. It sucks, but you have to label something in order to be like, look, we're here, recognize us. We're not going anywhere. Right. I I heard Leslie, I think Leslie, like a gladder said, you know, she looks forward to the day that we only are hired because we're the best person for the job, but that day's not here yet. So I'm proud to be a, a female director. And I actually really thrived on proving myself. And there were so many other things against me, like, oh, you know, she was on a soap opera, you know, and soap operas are so considered you're a blue collar actor, which that, that again, that's a whole other conversation because it's yeah. absolute bullshit. Yeah. We are the best. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. The amount of dialogue alone. Yeah. And the pace in what you have to shoot and also how much emotion you have to bring every single time. I mean, it is a lot to handle. In the past, when you had directors that you didn't really love or, you know, gave you crappy notes, and it was really the way they handled the conversation or the the direction that they were trying to give you. How did you note that then? And how are you bringing it into your work style now in terms of being the director that you wanted to have or would like to have? Thank you for that question. It's a wonderful question. I try to go back and go, okay, what was that feeling I experienced when that person did that? What did that feel like? Did it feel exploitive? Did it feel disrespectful? Did it feel intimidating? Did it like, like, how did it feel? And then why did it feel like that? And most of the time, it's because that director was very narrow-minded, meaning like they didn't understand or care to understand 
all of the other things that I was dealing with, the whole person that I am. Another example is, I remember a director over the loudspeaker once was like, I, like I wasn't crying on time. And they were like, Kimberly, all these crew people, they want to go home. Can you figure it out and fucking cry already? Like, what is that? Like, what is that feeling? And, you know, and that director probably thought, you know, that was like an old school thing. The directors used to yell at actors and then they'd cry. But like, that is exploitive. That doesn't take into consideration that that's a human being. So I try to think about if I'm in a situation where let's say I'm not getting what I want out of the actor. I try to first think, okay, why? Are they not understanding it? Am I not communicating it right? Is the writing not good? Are they having a bad day? Are they hungry? Are they thinking about the fact that this person that they're in the scene with, they slept with last night and now they're wondering what's going to happen? You know what I mean? Like all very valid points, actually. (laughs) Right. No, seriously. Yeah. It's not my job to think of those things. However, if I keep in mind that someone is a human and they're going through something, then the way I approach them makes a difference. It makes all the difference, actually. The The atmosphere of the set comes from the top. Yes, I agree. Number one on the call sheet, the director, the producers. Yes. And the more nurturing the set, the more everybody is just more giving, everyone is more at ease, and they're able to do their best work. So yes. I think it's great that you take that time to consider you know, all the other factors that play into this, because I think the energy does come from the top. And in this case, it would be the director, you and the producers and and the leads. Yes. And sometimes I can't control how other people act. And unfortunately, it just takes one bad apple to sort of spoil the batch, you know? True. So, you know, you hear people say like, I have a no asshole policy and I'll ask them, (laughs) is that real? Is that real? And do I have authority to tell you if there is an asshole? Right. Or get rid of that person myself or, you know, right. um, because, yeah, there's always, there's always someone who's just talking smack. An asshole. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing that's great, though, the fact that you are in that position that you're in right now is that you do have the authority to correct that asshole. I do and I have. I think it's great that you're in that position. You can't escape assholes. They fall off trees. They're everywhere. Yeah. But I think it's important that when you are in a position, especially like where you are at, you do take the steps to correct it and not to just let it go unchecked. Yeah. I will say though, I have taken steps to correct things and then not been asked back to a show. So there's, there's consequences, meaning like I I don't win every time. Understood. Do you regret doing it though? No, I just thank God I didn't need that job. That's the thing. It's like this kind of goes into like the sexual harassment stuff. I mean, God, I could talk about that forever. But when I talk to men, I think what they don't fully understand because men just in general have not been exposed to this is like you really fear for your job. Yes. And your job means everything. Your job means your autonomy. Your job means your integrity. Your job means survival yeah the weight of having to speak up sometimes you'd rather feed your child right than tell this guy to fuck off that's why it's such a tricky issue 
Right. Yeah. It's so tricky. I really commend you for speaking up regardless of what the consequences are. And if we don't speak up, it's just going to go completely unchecked. And harassment, and I mean, that's a whole nother topic that we can get into. That is a persistent issue with very high stakes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. When you grew up in the business and you became older, talk a little bit about how those difficult experiences may have shifted as you got older and what you had to contend with And how did it sort of color the way you lensed not just the industry, but the world and how it sort of shaped you? Like, what did you walk away with? I think, you know, I had mentioned before that I, um, that I had some insecurities in relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that growing up on television and having intense relationships you mean on air? On air, yeah. Like intense yeah. makeout, sex scenes, all of that before I was really ready. You know, I was having sex on TV before I w- had sex in real life. So that I think made me want to control it more. And I think that I was sort of scared of venturing out there and, um, having successful relationships because I felt like that was so just sort of put upon me. Okay. So I dated a bunch of kind of bad guys, (laughs) which is kind of my rebellion. Like, I don't know. I was really weird. I didn't drink alcohol. Like I was kind of like, my friends would call me like a prude in comparison to my friends. I didn't do drugs. They were like wild. And I was like, no, like I can't fuck this up. Like I'm a professional. I have to go to work. I have to do these things. You and I could have been friends back then. (laughs) (laughs) I was the sober driver. Like, yeah, I get it. I just think that just really just, do we need to see teenagers having sex on camera? Like, do we like, right. Do we really need that? Is that necessary? It's kind of how I feel about like rape scenes. Do we need to see that ever again? You know? So uh, I I would say that being a woman and having to be sexy and having to do sex scenes at such a young age was not good for me. For me. Because there are other young people who are very free with their sexuality and it doesn't feel like invasive to them. Like it's part of who they are. It's a beautiful thing. But for me, it was uh, scary, like very, very scary. We've sort of touched upon uh, several different examples of adversity and really uncomfortable situations that you found yourself in. Did it make you question people? their goodness and their motivations? Or did it give you the perspective you needed to say, okay, I understand this and I understand where it's coming from? Because, you know, you were talking about having the ability in the midst of a production day and directing, which is very compressed. You know, for everybody that's not in the business, production and when you're shooting a show, it can be really intense. There is so much coming at you from all different directions and all at once, and you got to tend to all of it. And that clock is ticking. Yeah. It feels like you blink and the day's over. 
but you're also so tired and your feet are feel like they're gonna yeah, fall off. Exactly. And your yeah. back is hurting and you need a Motrin. Yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you, Kimberly, is you just laid out early in the conversation that you take the time to say, what's going on with this person? Are they having a bad day? You're really taking a moment to consider that person. Yes. Which doesn't always happen. A lot of people don't because they're in that sort of pressure cooker of getting that show. They're getting from A to B, getting it quickly. And people have a lot of different ways to, to get there. But you have this great ability to kind of stop and think about that person, the human element. Did going through all of those difficult experiences at that point make you question the goodness of people? Or did it give you the perspective that you now have and apply in your work as a producer, as an actress, as a director, and overall as a person? No, I didn't, I didn't question the goodness of people. What it did make me think is that you guys are putting so much importance on this thing that is not real. This is not real life. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's because I started so young. Like I could just see it. It was like, oh, this person's believing the hype about themselves. This person's buying a car that is too expensive for them and they lose their job. They're also going to lose their car. This person is having an affair with the person they're on the show with. But as soon as their wife finds out, they're screwed. You know, it was just like, this is a fantasy world. Right. It's a fantasy world. It's a job and it's a privilege to be able to do this job. Absolutely. But it's not real. And like, right. like are you really going to like sit there on your deathbed and be like, oh my God, I made, a, I made all my days as a director. I never went over like one minute. <laughs> Right. Who cares? But so many people buy into the whole smoke and, and mirrors thing, Kimberly. Yeah, you just can't. I mean, I, agree. I think that's why I still have a love for it and a passion for it because I see what it can do. It can be such a like gooey, loving experience. Like when things are going well, you know, you have these like happy accidents on set and it just feels like ethereal. It feels like church. Like It can, it can feel like that. It right. really can. So it's just like knowing that that could happen and knowing that the rest of it is just kind of bullshit, you know? Yeah. I just want to clarify something. Please. I don't think that it's all bullshit. I don't think it's all. I think storytelling is one of the most powerful tools that we have as humans to make the world a better place. Yes. Totally agree. Okay. What I'm saying is all the other stuff, like the accolades and the, the BMWs. Yes. The peripheral stuff. Yeah, that's like, it's like whatever. I agree with you 100%. I love the fact that you've got your feet on the ground. But a lot of people do get drunk on the Kool-Aid and sort of lose themselves. Yes. You haven't fallen to that. How do you stay grounded? Um, the, the first thing that comes to mind is my friends and my family. I didn't surround myself with people in the business. It wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I actually had girlfriends who were actresses. Before that, I would never really allow myself. It was like, no, that's what I do when I go to work. And these are my quote unquote real friends. When did you consciously make that choice? Because that's a choice. Yeah, honestly, it was when we were doing Night Shift, which was like a spinoff of General Hospital. And I just fell in love with Manai Noji and Kent King. 
And I was like, you know what? These women are going to be my friends and I trust them. And then the other thing is the alternative. Like I've seen so many child actors, you know, unfortunately get into drugs or kill themselves or they're just unhappy people. I've also seen a lot of successful ones. Just saying when I was growing up, there were people that I sort of knew, River Phoenix, that didn't make it. And so for me, it's kind of like, well, what's the alternative of being grounded? The alternative is being unhappy or being dead. Wow. I'd rather be alive and, 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 you know, stable and have a good family or at least have good friendships and relationships. And thankfully I've been able to, what's the word, sort of like hold out it to, to a point in the business where I'm having meetings with these female executives that are badass and have integrity and are supportive. And it's like, I feel like I am surrounded by like-minded individuals. That's awesome. I didn't think that that would happen. And it's like happening. So I think the business is changing for the better. I think that it's only a matter of time before it, we weed out the the yuckies, as I like to call them. Um, That's a very sweet way to call it. You know, the Weinsteins of the world <laughs> until they're just sort of <laughs> squeezed out. Yeah, for sure. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, though. There's still a lot of work. Oh, yes. Yes. But I am here to tell you that it's being done. Right. I feel like you are out there doing and applying the things that you've learned and you're doing it. Like you're making sure that your sets and your cast are well taken care of. You're considering their day. Yes, that's important to me. But I have to say, like, what's funny is that, how can I say this? Just say it. (sighs) Well, I've been on a few sets where actors have said to me, like, nobody talks to us the way you do please stay, please stay forever. That's always the greatest compliment. Of course, I always want the showrunners to say I delivered a great episode and that's important to me too. But now that they know what it it feels like to have a great director, maybe they won't put up with other ones. Right. (laughs) You know, you're like, maybe this will be part of the norm. Maybe they will feel like they can say, hey, I need direction or, hey, I need you to talk to me about this moment or, hey, like, stop. This doesn't feel right. I had that happen to me too. I had an actor pretty recently come out of the scene and came over to me and was like, look, this isn't working for me. Is it working for you? And I was like, my stomach was like, oh no, because the producer's there, the writer's there. And I looked at her and I said, it's not, you're right. It's not working. (laughs) It's not working. Let's start from scratch. Go back to the beginning. And um, I think that I gained such a, like, like a bond with that actor because I was willing to say, you're right. And thank, and thank you for speaking up instead of trying to be like, it's great. You know, knowing full well, it was terrible. Right. But again, you're the one doing it. So if someone in your position wasn't the cycle, it continues. It continues. Yeah. But like, you know, if you've never had something, you don't know what you're missing. Right. So yes. Like I've, you know, and now that you've had that sample, you want more of it because you know it's good. You know there's other ways to do things. You need that representation. I think it's a testament to you in multiple ways. First, from your experience as an actor to 
the person that you are is that you are out there doing the things that you believe in. Yeah, I'm trying to give back. I am for sure. I mean, yeah. I've been given a lot of gifts in my life and wonderful people. And so, yes, I am trying to give, I am trying to give back whilst living my dream. <laughs> That's not easy though. What I wanted to get back to, and I sort of want to make a point of this is life in general places all of us in neat little boxes and labels. And yes, you're right. You know, in order to start something new, it can oftentimes start in a very awkward, clumsy way. Everything, everyone, it has to be categorized as something. It has to be definitive. And you could, I'm going to say this sort of crassly, can be slotted into multiple boxes, right? One child actor, that in itself has its own stigmas that are automatically attached. Then an actor that wants to be a director, that comes with its own set of stereotypes. But you were like, this is who I am. I'm not going to be put in a box. You could deal with it the way you want to. So I guess the thing is, where did you find your footing, your, your strength? And how do you sort of nurture that? Um, I definitely fight against those boxes because you're right. I have been put in a lot of those boxes at a very young age. Yes. So I will share a hopeful, gratifying story. When I first met my agent, I said to her, I want to do everything. And she's like, what do you mean? I want to do it all. I want to do everything. And she was like, oh my God, like that, that sounds like so much fun. So that is a very controversial statement as a director. Most of the time you are a comedy director. Well, okay, hold on. There's different. There's a sitcom. There's a multi-cam director. There's a single cam comedy director. There's a episodic drama director. There's, I'm sure I'm missing some. There's, oh, there's like action, sci-fi. And then there's like, you're a movie. No, then you're an indie film director or you're a studio film director. There's more, but. Yeah, there's a ton. So you, you're kind of made to feel like when you're starting a career that you have to pick one of these things. So what I'm experiencing now is so gratifying because I'm having meetings with a lot of these showrunners and producer types. I'm at that point in my career where I want to do a pilot and a movie. Pilots and movies. Okay. And as a director? As a director. Awesome. And what I think is so rad is that the reason a lot of the times they're interested in me is because my resume is like half drama and half comedy. And there's only like a few, like a handful of directors that do multi-cam and single cam because they're, they, well, the industry thinks they're totally different, but they're not. So (laughs) (laughs) there is a director, her name's Millicent Shelton. And she was kind of like my North star in this sort of idea. And I, I talked to her once and I was like, oh my God, you're like my hero. Can I, I didn't I have a question. And I was like, how did you do it? Because you do everything. Like, how do you keep from people putting you in boxes? Like, what do you, what do you do? And she's like, mm-hmm. anytime the conversation goes towards, is this a single cam? Is this the, what's the tone? And she's like, I steer the conversation away from the medium, the medium of the project. And I gear it towards the content of the material and why I'm attracted to the content. She's like, it's not about all that other stuff. 
It's about why do you care about it? What's your vision for it? What's your connection to it? And talk about it in terms of, of that. She really helped me with that. I just am so satisfied because what I sort of set out to do is working. And a lot of people told me that it wouldn't. A lot of people were like, just pick one lane and stay in it. You'll be lucky to get in one lane. So if you get in the lane, like stay there. (laughs) I'm glad you didn't listen. We are all more than one thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just made so much sense when Melissa said that to me. It's like, oh, that's what it is. And then the other thing is like, I just love to be challenged. So I love doing an action heavy show or visual effects heavy show or musical heavy show or like a just straight up bro humor like it's always sunny or working with like insane actors i love the variety of feeling like really scared on my first day of school i love that feeling of like oh my god am i gonna be able to do this keeps me interested so what would you say to people that need to understand it's important to go beyond the surface Mm. you mean artists in general like the world like why is it important to see beyond what's in front of you beyond skin color, beyond gender, beyond age, beyond the jobs that people have? Why is it important to see beyond the labels, beyond the stereotypes? I think you have to ask yourself why that is your first inclination, why you even do that. And I think a lot of it has to do with fear of the unknown. And also what we all want, I think, as humans is we all want to be special but there's this like weird sort of gloss that's like been over the world that says to people if they're special you can't be special right and so we constantly trying to be like okay i understand what you are and now that i understand what you are i know why i'm better than you as opposed to we're all different, but we're all sort of part of the same energy or part of the same world. And we're all like beautiful. Like, I think that's, that's really hard for people to grasp and accept because what they think it means is if that person's beautiful and special and amazing, that for some reason, it means we compare ourselves. For some reason, it means that we're not special and amazing. And, and then on top of that, it's not just the onus is not just on the person, but the onus is on the society to stop doing that shit to people. Right. To stop saying like, white is best, young is best, rich is best. Absolutely. Right. But those are the messages that we keep getting hammered. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like, you got to go like, <clears throat> that's noise. That's <clears throat> I like it. Yuck. It's yuck. It's, it doesn't, no. Don't let that in. You know, God, I feel, I really feel for our teenagers today. I really do because they're just like on their phones all the time. Yeah. And, you know, my son is only four, but like I freak the fuck out about what's going to happen when he discovers social media one day. Yeah. It's even harder. I I would just say any, any sort of company, person, um, religious organization. If anyone tells you that you're right and other people are wrong, run. That's so good. <laughs> run. <laughs> yeah, just get the hell out of there. 
from all the different vantage points that you've had, when you look back on all of it, and I mean directing, acting, all of it, what do you celebrate most about that whole transformation? I think I celebrate that I've been able to, how can I say it? I always have had wonderful friends. Like I've always had wonderful people who are like, how can I say, like they care about what I do for work only as much as it does it make me happy. But they don't care right. if I was on TV. They don't care if I was making money. They don't like they don't they care in relation to how it's a part of your life. Yeah, how it makes me feel, but that has been such a a blessing. Not everybody has that. And if you don't have that, it could things could be really scary. You know, if you have the wrong people around you. Yes. Things can go awry very quickly. Things can go bad. And again, that's not always the performer or the artist's fault. These things are major machines. Sometimes it just it just happens and it's it gets out of control. But I've I've been able to have good people around me and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. So Kimberly, help sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I am Kimberly McCullough, and I represent breaking down all the boxes. With tremendous thanks to Kimberly McCullough for making time to come to Repin, for sharing her talent, her experiences with us, and for all that she's doing on and off screen. Make sure you follow Kimberly and her career on social media. As always, I'll have those links in the episode description. Next up, from the CW's Kung Fu and CBC's Street Legal, Yvonne Chapman comes to play. There's always going to be other things happening outside of your control that you wish you could control, but you're never going to be able to. So you have two options there. You can either let it get to you and stew in the negative, or you can look at it and try to find the opportunity in it. Hey everyone, this is Yvonne Chapman. Don't miss my episode of Reppin coming up next. Reppin is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms, and every episode is available for download. So collect them all. And don't forget, subscribe, share, and leave a review. And I'm on Twitter. So talk to me at Reppin Podcast and check out some exclusive content called In Seconds, available only on the Instagram page at Reppin underscore podcast. Thanks always to Nelson Pinero, my musical composer and technical director for all of his time, talent, and for caring as much as he does. And always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, be sure to stand up and represent. Once upon a time, there was a girl who dreamed of flying through the stars, who dared to resist injustice, who lived to a beat and a rhythm that was all her own. Her name was Chloe Frida, Oprah, Celia Cruz, Josephine, Greta, Ruth, Alice. One day, she wondered, could today be the beginning of something new? This was her one opportunity to do something, something big. So that's exactly what she did. Along the way, she discovered that she wasn't alone. Her body felt strong, her mind sharp. She was prepared to work as hard as it took. Her words were making a real change, and she felt powerful. I'm Gail King. I'm Andrea Day. I'm Diane Gibbons. I'm Lindsay Vaughn. I'm Jamila Jamal. I'm Anita Hill. I'm Brenda Chapman. I'm Alana Glazer. And this is Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or find out more at rebelgirls.com slash audio.